Exodus 22, verse 21. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. To the people of Israel, God gave this law. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with a sword and your wife shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to them and you shall not exact interest from them. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate, says the Lord. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. Let's go now to Ephesians chapter 6 and look at verses 5 through 9. Here the apostle writes to the church in Ephesus, saying, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord. And not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord add his blessing to the preaching of it today. I probably don't need to tell you that this subject that is before us today is a delicate one. It was a delicate subject in Paul's day, and it's a delicate subject in our day, but for different reasons. In Paul's day, slavery was interwoven into the fabric of society. It was institutional. It was legal under Roman law. To give you an idea of how pervasive slavery was in Roman society, historians do estimate that as many as a third of the residents of Ephesus were slaves. Most of them worked in agrarian contexts and were therefore crucial to the stability of that society. Um, They really contributed to economic stability. The food supply depended upon them. Slaves in that day would become slaves for a number of reasons. Perhaps it was through military conquest. Perhaps a person fell into economic hardship and thus had no other option but to sell themselves into slavery or to servitude for a time. In those days, unwanted infants were sometimes left outside to die of exposure, and slave traders would pick them up to sell them as slaves. Others were simply born into slavery. And it was not at all uncommon for slaves to be treated very harshly by their Roman masters. And neither was it uncommon for slaves to be rebellious and even violent towards their masters. And so when Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, he knew that there would certainly be slaves, bondservants, and masters within the Christian congregation. He knew that these bondservants, as they are called here in the ESV, were considered in that culture to be a part of the family. And so Paul addresses here the relationship between master 
and slave as he gives instructions for the household. First he spoke to husbands and wives, then he spoke to parents and to children, and here now he speaks to masters and slaves. So please understand that what Paul says here to masters and slaves was in fact revolutionary. It was provocative, it was controversial even in his day. And I will say a little more about how Paul's words have been received by his first century Greco-Roman audience in just a moment. But for now, I want you to understand that this was a delicate issue, even in Paul's day. In our day, the issue is delicate, but for different reasons. For those of us living in the United States in the year 2020, it is delicate for us to read the words masters and bondservants because it is difficult for us to hear those words and to not think about the slavery that existed in this country not long ago. And when we think about that form of slavery that existed in this country not long ago, we understand that it was unjust and we are right to celebrate its eradication. In our country's history, a large portion of the population did consider a particular race of men to be an inferior race. Black men and women, boys and girls, were unjustly treated. They were deprived of their natural rights. They were Oppressed, And so it is right for us to condemn slavery as it existed in the American context. And it is right for us to see that it was thoroughly, to see to it that it is thoroughly and forever eradicated from our society. It is right for us to seek to promote justice in this land. Uh, to never tolerate laws that favor or oppress one race of men over another as followers of Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, this is a part of our civil responsibility. As Christian men and women, it is right for us to engage in the political realm and to promote justice whenever possible. Now, thankfully, slavery is no longer legal in our nation. Uh, slavery is no longer interwoven into the fabric of our society. It is not institutional as it was in our nation's history for a time and as it was in first century Rome but slavery does exist in the world. There are even slaves in our land, and I am here thinking of those slaves who have been trafficked illegally. And so I think it is important to say from the outset of this sermon that Paul's words do not in any way apply to this form of slavery that exists even now, uh, this form of slavery being illegal, purely exploitative, sinful, and just to the core, uh, stated differently, in no way does Paul say to this kind of slave, a slave who has been trafficked illegally and exploited, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Uh, certainly not. And the one who is in bondage to this kind of slavery should seek to escape these bonds at the first opportunity and to seek the assistance of others, uh, seek the assistance of the church, but especially uh, our criminal justice system the one who has been stolen away or enticed into this form of slavery. I say you are in no way obligated to submit to this oppression. And Christians, we must be mindful of the fact that this kind of evil does exist in the world. And we should be eager to eradicate it from our society as we have opportunity as citizens of this land. But as we consider Paul's instructions to Christian masters and bondservants... We should notice that he neither condemns slavery as inherently sinful, 
nor does he condone slavery as an institution to be desired. Instead, he simply addressed slavery as a matter of fact. And he gives instructions here in Ephesians to Christian slaves and to masters so that they might walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which they have been called, even within the context of this undesirable institution. Marriage was instituted by God at creation. So too was the family. Even in the garden, before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve were to fill the earth. They were to raise their children in the Lord until they themselves were joined in marriage to, one another, to another and established households of their own. But slavery was not instituted at creation. But instead it came to be only through the effects of the fall of man into sin. As men and women grew destitute or were conquered by others more powerful than themselves, they became slaves. And so, though slavery, that is to say the practice of one man having authority over another's time, energies, and abilities, may not be inherently sinful, its presence in the world can only be explained if one considers the fall of man into sin and its effects. And we know that slavery, though it may not be inherently sinful, is most often sinful, as men oppress others unjustly and treat them harshly, failing to honor them as being made in the image of God. Now, when I say that slavery is not inherently evil, I mean that it is not impossible to imagine a situation where someone might come to be a slave or a bondservant or an indentured servant in a way that is just. Perhaps they become destitute. Perhaps they have become so indebted to another that they must sell themselves into servitude for a period of time in order to free themselves from the debt. Perhaps the time of service is a penalty for a crime committed where recompense is required. Now I understand that our judicial system and our economic systems do not function in this way, and I am not here trying to make a case for it. But I think that we must acknowledge that economic and judicial systems have functioned this way throughout most of the history of the world. And I do not think that we can label them sinful or unjust automatically. And in such situations as the ones that I have just described, it is not impossible to imagine a master treating his bondservant fairly, justly, and even with kindness. And this is why I have said that we should be careful to not condemn all forms of slavery or servitude as inherently evil. It would be very easy for us to do this, I think, given the form of slavery that was only recently eradicated from our land, and given the tendency that men have had throughout the history of the world to abuse their authority and to oppress those who are under them. Given these realities, it would be easy for us to condemn all forms of servitude as inherently evil. But I think this would be careless. It would miss the point and fail to identify with precision the evil and the injustice that has often plagued the institution of slavery throughout the history of the world. In fact, though we have eradicated all forms of legal and institutional slavery from our society, it is possible that we have introduced other forms of injustice in its place. And here I am simply saying this, that it is only by being careful 
in defining what justice is and what injustice is, that we will be able to identify the injustice that exists within any given society. And so we must consider these matters very carefully, friends, lest we trade one form of evil for another. So why have I said this? Why have I bothered to say that though slavery is often sinful, it is not inherently so? Why have I bothered to point out that there are different forms of slavery? Some may be thoroughly unjust, oftentimes they are, while others might be just. Well, I think it should be obvious to us as Christians. As I have said, we are to notice here that Paul does not condemn slavery as inherently sinful, nor does he condone slavery as an institution to be desired. Instead, he simply addresses slavery as a matter of fact and gives instructions to Christian slaves and masters so that they might walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which they had been called, even within the context of this undesirable and often corrupt institution. The same could be said of Paul's statement in Colossians 3. He addresses the matter there as well. And the entire letter written to Philemon has this issue interwoven within it. Uh, There, Paul writes to a Christian man named Philemon, whose servant or slave or bondservant had run away. And instead of condemning slavery as inherently evil, saying to Philemon, cease from this practice altogether, he urges Philemon to receive Onesimus back and to treat him as a brother in Christ fairly and according to justice. Uh, That is at the essence of that letter that Paul writes. Uh, The point I am here making is that if it were inherently evil, then Paul would have this obligation. He would have to say to the Ephesians and to the Colossians and to Philemon, cease from this altogether, for it is wicked to the core. You should have nothing to do with this. But he does not say that. We might also point out those passages in the law of God, the law of Moses, that regulate the institution of slavery and demand that masters treat their servants kindly and with justice as being made in the image of God uh, themselves. Now, to be clear, I am not proposing that slavery of any kind is to be desired. I think it is far better that a society finds a way for men and women to pay off their financial debts for example, while maintaining their freedom. And to be clear, I am in full agreement that the form of slavery that existed in this country not long ago was was sinful, given the circumstances. A key component of that form of slavery was the idea that one race of men was inferior to another. And this is contrary to the scriptures, which teach that all men are created equal, being made in God's image. Furthermore, That slavery that existed in this country was forced. The treatment of slaves was often unjust and inhumane. Natural rights were consistently violated. And I am saying that it's good that this form of slavery has been thoroughly eradicated from this land. I'm simply trying to think carefully about the issue and with some precision so that we might understand why the scriptures say what they say about the issue and also refrain from saying things that we might from our modern vantage point, wish that they say. It is crucial that we think carefully about this delicate and emotional issue. And I'm afraid that much of the present discourse on the subject of race and slavery in the past, it's careless in our land. 
And one crucial error that is being made is that historical figures are being judged without consideration being given to the time in which they lived. Yes, I suppose that many living in modern times would wish that Paul had labored to emancipate all slaves and to abolish the institution as it existed in the ancient world. But such an opinion is naive. It ignores the realities of life in the ancient world. It ignores also the diversity of that institution within the Roman context. And we must be careful when judging the character of men and women living in times past, we should formulate our opinions concerning their thoughts and actions carefully, taking into consideration the times in which they lived. And I think now would probably be a good time for me to say something about the decision of the ESV translation that I preach from, which many of you have. Uh, the, the committee's decision to translate the Greek word doulos as bondservants instead of slave, as it is in the NASB, for example, and in the NIV. I'll let them speak for themselves. Uh, they make a remark about this in their preface to the ESV translation. And I think what they say here is very helpful, not only to us understanding why, have they, have ch- why they have chosen to use this particular word, but also it helps us, I think, to understand this issue. They remark that A particular difficulty is presented in translation work when words in biblical Hebrew and Greek refer to ancient practices and institutions that do not correspond directly to those in the modern world. And such is the case in the translation of Habed, the Hebrew, and doulos in the Greek, terms which are often rendered slave. These terms, however, actually cover a range of relationships that require a range of renderings, slave, bondservant, or servant, depending upon the context. Further, the word slave currently carries associations with the often brutal and dehumanizing institutions of slavery, particularly in the 19th century American context. For this reason, the ESV translation of the words abed and doulos in the Greek has been undertaken with particular attention to their meaning in each specific context. Thus, in Old Testament times, one might enter slavery either voluntarily, for example, to escape poverty or pay off debt, or involuntarily, involuntarily by birth or by being captured in battle or by judicial sentence. But protection for all in servitude in ancient Israel was provided by the Mosaic law, including specific provisions for release from slavery. In New Testament times, a a doulos is often best described as a bondservant, that is someone in the Roman Empire officially bound under contract to serve his master for seven years except for those in Caesar's household in Rome who were contracted for 14 years. When the contract expired, the person was freed, given his wage that had been saved by the master and officially declared a freed man. The ESV usage thus seeks to express the most fitting nuance of meaning in each context, where absolute ownership by a master is envisioned, as in Romans 6, slave is used. Where a more limited form of servitude is in view, bondservant is used, as in 1 Corinthians 7, 21 through 24, and where the context indicates a wide range of freedom, as in John 4, 51, servant is preferred. And I appreciate this explanation from the translation committee of the ESV. It helps us to, to think with precision concerning this issue as it existed in that ancient context, in the Greco-Roman context. As we now begin to turn our attention... Paul's instructions to bondservants and masters. I do want for you to remember and recognize that his teaching was in fact revolutionary and countercultural in his day. Furthermore, I want for you to see that what Paul taught concerning the relationship between masters and bondservants would in fact contribute 
to the eventual eradication of the ancient slave system, which was often marked by injustice, brutality, and oppression. Did you hear that? If we consider this issue historically, not only the historical context in Paul's day, but where things would lead in the centuries that followed, what Paul taught here concerning the relationship between masters and bond servants would contribute to the eventual eradication of the ancient slave system. When Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians, he had very little influence amongst the Romans. And the Christian church to whom he wrote also lacked cultural influence. They were at that time nothing more than a persecuted minority. But over time, the church's influence would grow. And the biblical teaching that all men are created equal, being made in the image of God, would have an impact upon the prevailing culture. Notice also that this truth is not only revealed in the scriptures, but in nature. And there were some other um, non-Christian philosophers arguing for the same thing, according to the light of nature within them. But Paul's teaching here, uh, the biblical teaching that all men are created equal, being made in the image of God, would in fact have an impact upon the prevailing culture as the church's influence grew. And this should always be our hope, brothers and sisters, to not only further God's kingdom on earth through gospel proclamation and by teaching Christ's disciples to obey all that He has commanded, but even to impact the cultures of this world for good. We as Christians are to promote justice and peace. We are to seek the good of the city and nation in which God has placed us as we ourselves seek to keep God's law and urge others to do the same. As it pertains to slavery, slavery, especially the racially motivated, unjust, and oppressive kind, it cannot survive in a culture where the majority of men and women believe the truth that all men are created equal, being made in the image of God. This idea and the practice of slavery, at least the the racially motivated, oppressive, and unjust kind, these two things cannot coexist in a society where the majority of men and women believe this. And this is what Paul here teaches, as we will see. He will apply this principle to masters, insisting that they treat their bondservants with dignity, knowing that they both, both the masters and the bondservants, they have the same master in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. And over time, though Paul would not live to see the day, the truths would, these truths that that he here communicates would contribute to the abolition of the ancient trade system as the church and the church's teaching would grow in prominence. And I think we must acknowledge that God's ways are mysterious indeed. Before we consider Paul's exhortation to masters, we must consider his exhortation to bondservants. If Paul's exhortation to masters was controversial and countercultural in his day, which it was, his exhortation to bondservants is countercultural in ours. To the slaves within the church of Ephesus, Paul wrote these words Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is 
a bondservant or is free. Notice that Paul does not encourage bondservants to cast off the yoke of their earthly masters as we might wish, but to obey them instead with fear and trembling. Notice that he doesn't qualify this command, saying, so long as your masters are just and kind, then honor them. But he simply gives this command without qualification. And notice that what Paul says to bondservants corresponds to what Paul says to others regarding submission to the authority that is over them. Children are to obey their parents in the Lord. Wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. And it is Peter who says that they are to do this so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. And in another place, Paul addresses the Christian's submission to civil authority, and he makes no exception for rulers that are ungodly, which they certainly were in his day. He only says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That is Romans 13.1. The exception to the rule is that when Christians are pressed to choose between obeying earthly authorities and God, They are to obey God and not man. And such would be true for bondservants as well in that first century context. If pressed to obey God or their earthly masters, the Christian bondservants were to choose to obey God, no matter how severe the consequences. Those must have been difficult decisions for those bondservants to make when they were being pressed to choose between the two. And I hear say, Lord, help those who are being pressed to make such choices even in the world today. But in general, Christian bondservants were commanded by the apostle to obey their earthly masters with fear and trembling. Again, I will remind you that slavery was legal under Roman law. Bondservants played an important role in the economic system. Their work was crucial to the stability of the food chain. You may wish that Paul had encouraged disobedience and revolt. But the time was not right, nor was it Paul's view that it was his place as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, nor did he teach that individuals should seek to bring about change within a culture through this kind of rebellion. Furthermore, the reality is that if Paul had encouraged a slave revolt on the basis of unjust treatment, he would have been sending these Christian slaves to certain death at the hands of the Romans. Instead, he urged submission to the authority that was over them, despite all of the imperfections associated with this institution. This concept of submission to authority is sometimes difficult for modern-day Americans to receive. Perhaps you have noticed this. But I would ask you to consider this. Perhaps we are the ones whose view is flawed. Perhaps the problem is with us. Perhaps we are too individualistic too in love with our rights and freedoms. Just maybe we need to learn how to honor the authorities that are over us, flawed as they may be, as we pray and wait patiently upon the Lord to right the wrongs that trouble us so deeply in our society. This does not mean that we must be passive. In fact, we must seek to influence the world around us for good through our patient and persistent presence as salt and as light, but we must also honor the authorities that God, according to his sovereign will and infinite wisdom, has determined to set over us at this time. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. I have, as I have said, this principle of submission is constantly, consistently rather, applied in Ephesians to wives, to children, 
and to bond servants. And what Paul says to bond servants is particularly instructive, I think, though no one here is a bond servant. All of us are under some authority. And what Paul says to bond servants concerning submission to their earthly masters must be picked up by us and applied. We must do so carefully because the situation is not identical. But this must be applied by us. First of all, Paul commands Christian bondservants to obey their earthly masters. This is simple enough. Just as a child is to obey their parents, so bondservants are to obey their masters, Paul says. Though all are equal in Christ, as we will see, and though all humans are of equal worth, given that they have all been made in the image of God, the world has been designed in such a way that some have authority over others within society, and obedience is to be offered up to those who have authority. Secondly, Paul commands Christian bondservants to obey their masters from the heart. Uh, This principle, you notice, is peppered throughout verses 5 through 8. Bondservants are to obey their masters with fear and trembling, the apostle says. They are to have a true and sincere respect for their masters. They are to not obey by the way of eye service as people pleasers. And I think you understand what this means. They are to obey their masters not superficially, but sincerely and from the heart is the point. They are to serve their masters faithfully in a way that is becoming of a Christian, truly wishing to do them good and not evil. I think here of the way that Joseph served in Potiphar's house and also in the prison, as recorded for us there in the book of Genesis. He was faithful to his master, even though the circumstances that brought him to Egypt were thoroughly unjust. He served his master not only when his master was looking, but even when his master was away. And you remember that even Potiphar's wife approached Joseph and he would not sin against God nor his master by doing that most inappropriate thing. He was faithful. And this is the way that Christian bondservants should serve, sincerely and from the heart, rendering service with a good will, the text says. And this is also how children, wives, and citizens should honor honor the authority that is over them with sincerity in the heart. Thirdly, Paul commands bondservants to sincerely obey their masters as to Christ, the text says. This principle is also peppered throughout this text. And I believe that this principle is key if bondservants are to, were to, consistently serve their masters, especially those masters that were unjust. They are to serve their earthly masters, the text says, as they would Christ. They are to obey them as bondservants of Christ. They are to do their master's will because it is the will of God. They are to render service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. So, so Paul takes all of this instruction and he roots it in our obedience to God and Christ. And I think this is the only way that we can manage to give honor to the authorities that are over us, especially when those authorities are sinful, harsh, oppressive. We, we can only do it faithfully if we do it as unto the Lord, knowing that we are doing it not because that particular man is worthy of our respect or our honor, but because of the position they hold as given to them by God for whatever reason. And so our obedience and our honor that is shown is shown for the sake of Christ, 
and for the sake of our obedience to Him. This principle that we are to honor those who have authority over us as unto the Lord is what makes it possible to honor earthly and often sinful authority figures sincerely and from the heart. And so friends, just as bondservants were to honor their earthly masters, so you are to honor those who have authority over you. You are to do this for Christ's sake. This obedience is to be offered up not to man ultimately, but to God. It may be that you are treated poorly in return, but what Paul is here saying is that God sees this. He sees both your faithful service and your unjust treatment, if it is the case, and He will repay both. That is the promise here. Again, I think the story of Joseph looms large. He was faithful to God in Potiphar's house. He was faithful to God in the prison. He honored Potiphar and he even honored the prison guard despite the injustices. And God in due time did lift him up out of the pit to reward his faithfulness. Joseph is a model for us then. And in his life we see that God is sovereign even over our sufferings. God is faithful. He is able to deliver us and to reward our devotion. He rewarded Joseph in this life, and certainly he re- will reward all of his servants' devotion in the life to come. As I have said, no one here is a bond servant. And it is difficult, therefore, to find a relationship that is similar to that of a bond servant to a master in our modern day. I think great care needs to be taken when seeking to apply this text to other relationships that are not the same. But there are some principles here that can be applied by wives in relation to their husbands, by children in relation to their parents, by members in relation to their elders, by students in relation to their teachers, by employees in relation to their employer, by officers in relation to sergeants, and by citizens in relation to the police and to governors and to presidents even. These relationships are not identical. We must take care here. But there are principles that can be taken from this text and applied to these relationships, these authorities that exist within the world, even today. In brief, in Christ, we are to, and here I quote Romans 13, 7, pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Brothers and sisters, Paul wrote these words while living under a very oppressive system, an oppressive ruler, ungodly men having authority over him. That is when he wrote these words. We need to to think carefully about these things, brothers and sisters, and to be sure that we are walking as Christians should in this world. Lord, do help us to honor these who have authority over us. Help us to do it sincerely and from the heart. Help us to submit to authority as to Christ and for His name's sake. Finally, we come to Paul's instructions to Christian masters. As I have said, these words would have seemed radical in the first century Roman world. Verse 9, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that He is both, who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. No one here is a master in the sense that Paul uses the term, but anyone who has any kind of authority can learn from what Paul says to masters here. 
I think parents can learn from this. Husbands can learn from this. Whatever authority you have, you can learn from what Paul says here to masters concerning their relationship to bondservants. He commands masters to do the same to them. That is a radical statement, brothers and sisters. Masters do the same to them. It's an astonishing statement. At least it would have been to his Roman audience. When Paul says, masters do the same to your servants, clearly he does not mean that they are to offer up obedience to their servants. Instead, he means that masters are to do the will of God as it pertains to their servants. They are to serve them with the love of Christ as they honor them as fellow human beings made in the image of God. Bond servants are not to be viewed as property, but as people. And they were to be respected as such. This is at the core of Paul's teaching. Remember how Paul, after commanding bond servants to obey their masters, also addressed their heart. He says to the bond servants, obey your masters from the heart, right? Peppered throughout the text. Well, in the same way, Paul addresses the heart of the masters when he says, and stop your threatening. Masters should not even have an oppressive, harsh, or condescending attitude towards their servants, but should love them instead with the love of Christ. And remember how Paul urged the bond servants to obey their masters as to the Lord? Well, Paul also urges masters to treat their servants as equals, being mindful of God who is in heaven. So masters were to have authority. They were to rule over their bond servants as to the Lord, as to God, being mindful of their God who is in heaven, who is their master and the master of their bond servants. Do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Every human authority must wield their power with the heart of a servant in love, being ever mindful that they themselves are under authority, that is to say, under the authority of God. This they must do if they are to please God. They are his servants. They have their authority in order to serve God in the civil realm, within the family, within the church, whatever the circumstance may be. And if they are to please God, they are to wield their authority with the heart of a servant in love, being ever mindful that they themselves are under the authority of God. This is often lacking in the world, isn't it, brothers and sisters? It had better not be lacking in our homes and in the church. And as we have opportunity, we should put it on display within the world and seek to promote this kind of leadership, this kind of authority, one that is marked by love and self-sacrificing service. God sees injustice. He does hear the cry of the oppressed, and he will surely pour out his wrath upon the oppressor, either in this life, certainly at the end of time. As we come now to a conclusion, I want for you to be mindful of the fact that when Paul wrote these words to masters and bondservants, he wrote them to the church in Ephesus. This is really something to think about, isn't it? Um, this is so foreign to us to even imagine that within the church of Ephesus there were Christian masters and Christian bondservants worshiping God together members of the church, of the body of Christ. He wrote to the church in Ephesus. Um, 
Of course, these words that we have considered, they do apply to the non-believing master and bondservant also. After all, these principles are rooted in justice, which is revealed according to the law of nature as well. These are universal truths uh, uh, that these, these commands are rooted in. But here I am saying that these things must be applied within the church. For in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. And if we are Christ's, then we are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. That is the same Paul writing to the churches in the region of Galatia. He is exhorting these churches to see that in Christ Jesus we are one. There is no partiality with with our God, our Master who is in heaven. As He looks upon us, He sees us as equal in Christ Jesus, co-heirs together of life eternal. The world is divided according to race. The world is divided according to class. The world is divided according to gender. In the world, the strong oppress the weak. But in Christ, we are united together as one. We are all made in God's image, sinners saved by grace, washed in the blood of the Lamb, black and white, male and female, rich and poor, slave and free, stand equal in Christ Jesus. And in the church, we do have a foretaste of the glory of the new heavens and earth where people will stand in perfect unity from every tribe and language and people and nation. In that day, they will be a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on earth having been ransomed by the blood of the Lamb. In the new heavens, there will be no division of the kind that we see in the world today. But all races, all genders, all types will be united together in Christ Jesus as we give glory to God, our Maker. And I am saying that in the church, we have a foretaste of the unity that will exist in the new heavens and earth, for our union is rooted not in the color of our skin, nor in gender, nor in class, but in Christ. And so the things that divide the world are to melt away in the church. They're to have no place here. They will certainly melt away on the last day when the kingdom of God is consummated. But here in the church, we have a foretaste of that kingdom as it has been inaugurated. Christ saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ saying, my kingdom is not of this world. And here we have a manifestation of that kingdom. Here we together say, Jesus is Lord. And we are united together in that confession. Being united to Christ by faith, we have union with one another. Those things that divide the world must never have a place within the church of Christ. But we should experience this perfect union in Him. We should and do have this union. And we should be eager to maintain it in Christ Jesus. The world is so very divided, but in Christ there is unity and peace. Peace among men can only be accomplished through peace with God. We must first be at peace with Him through faith in the Savior He has provided. And as we come to God as the Maker of us all, and to Christ as the Savior of us all, and submit to their authority, the things that divide us within the world will melt away and seem so very inconsequential. And how is it that our redemption was accomplished? How is it that our salvation was earned except by God the Son? taking the form of a 
bondservant, considering the equality that he had with God, not something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and he took this form of a bondservant, a slave. He served God and others in his life, becoming obedient even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And from there, he was exalted. Lord, we do pray that you would help your church have mercy upon us. May we be found as servants of Christ who love with the love of Christ, no matter our station in life, all to the glory of our Savior and King. Amen? Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we are sojourners. We are your people. You have called us to yourself. You are our Lord. You are our King. You are a Master. And yet we live in a world that is dark, sinful, and so often divided. Help us as your people to be what you have called us to be. That is a kingdom of priests. Help us to be united in Christ Jesus, holy unto you. Father, the things that divide the world, may they never divide us. May we be truly united with one another in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would make it so. Father, help us as we sojourn in this world to submit to your authority. Help us especially as it pertains to this command that we find throughout the scriptures to submit to the earthly and worldly authorities that are over us. Lord, it is difficult for us to do this. It has been difficult for your people to do this throughout the history of the world. But help us, Lord. Give us wisdom so that we might know how to do this well. Father, we pray for this land that you would have mercy upon it. We pray for the rulers that are over us, the leaders. Father, have mercy upon us. Lord, we pray that we would have leaders over us who do, in fact, seek to promote justice and peace. Father, we long to live at peace. We long to be free. And we ask that you would have mercy upon us, Lord, that you would give us this day our daily bread in this regard, that you would provide us with civil leaders that are, in fact, godly. Father, until then, help us as your people to live as your people in this world, trusting always in you, obedient. And help us as your people also, Lord, to have an impact upon the culture around us. You have called us to be salt and light. May it be so. May we live in such a way that the world sees our hope, they see our love, they see our unity, and they ask for a reason for the hope that was within us, Lord. Make us faithful in all of these things. Above all else, we do pray for the furtherance of your kingdom, that many would come to faith in Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. We thank you for him. We ask that you would help us to bring glory to him in this world. In the name of Christ, we pray. And all of God's people say, Amen.